You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis, Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Margaret O'Mara on her book, The Code. Margaret is the Scott and Dorothy Bullitt Professor of American History at the University of Washington. There she teaches the history of technology, industry, the history of capitalism, modern politics, and urban and metropolitan history. Margaret is a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American History and a past fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, the Council of Learned Science Societies, and the National Forum on the Future of Liberal Education. She has an MA and a PhD from the University of Penn and a BA from Northwestern University. Continuing to host this discussion with me is our Chief Investment Officer, Bill Smead. We discussed the first part of Margaret's book on our last episode. We continue this conversation with her, so let's jump in and continue that now. Thank you for joining us. John McCarthy, is who coined the phrase artificial intelligence, explain how computer mainframes were accessed at the time and what McCarthy saw instead for how users should access information. Yeah, so so John McCarthy is a great example of somebody who is, I talked earlier about the connections between Boston and the Bay Area, um, the connections of people and ideas and technology. And he is exactly one of those connections. He was at MIT and then he goes to Stanford. And he and other researchers are grappling with this question that really is a, a, a question that begins with digital computing. I mean, it's an old, it's a question that the question of artificial intelligence and how how humans and machines can interact with one another um, and how how computers can augment intelligence. That's something that McCarthy and others were always emphasizing as well, not just um, artificial, um, was a, was something that they were pursuing for quite some time. And a lot of that had to also, was also related to computers talking to one another and networked computing. And so network computing has its genesis in this sort of group of researchers and thinkers um, that are both East Coast and West Coast in the 50s and early 60s. And the first iteration of that networking is through timesharing networks, which were um, um, not the internet. This is before the internet has been developed, but uh, it is a more hub-and-spoke system of um, networked computing where you have one powerful mainframe and you have a lot of terminals that people are sharing time on, taking their turns using the computing power mm-hmm. for the batch processing they need to do. Uh, and there were actually commercial time-sharing networks, a set of companies that grow up in the 1960s in Palo Alto and elsewhere that are providing that service. So you don't have to buy a computer because keep in mind, computers are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, And one thing that's also happening at the same time is a Boston-based development, which is the mini computer. This is digital. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the big sort of superstar company that comes out of Boston. Um, Mini computers, if you may recall, they they weren't mini by our standards. They were pretty big. (laughs) But they were smaller than mainframes. And um, and they were uh, something that at a price point where you actually could, um, you know, a company that was offering a time-sharing service could buy a mini computer and offer a time-sharing service um, to multiple users with that core machine at the center of it. So you, you talked about how Big Ma Bell being taken down with Carter Phone and the NASDAQ dealers. Explain these situations and how important they were to open up access to the Internet service providers that we later came to know, like CompuServe, Prodigy, and others. Yeah, this is, um, this is a really important story. And it's, uh, you know, this is, look, coming into the 19... 19- 50s and 60s, Ma Bell is Ma Bell, right? It's it's the telephone service. It's you got to get your telephone service from Ma Bell. You got to buy your telephone and lease your telephone from Ma Bell. Like even the equipment on every end of the line is and something that maybe a lot of listeners who are under the age of, I don't know, uh, 
45. <laughs> I mean, I've been, I may not recall. Hey, I'm, 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 thir- I'm 39. I, I would say yeah. anybody under like 35. So <laughs> Anyone under 35. Like you had the big clunky phone that was, you know, you leased from the phone company. And uh, and so there was AT&T really wanted to keep that monopoly. Um, uh, and and th- this was, you know, something that the FCC kind of went back and forth, like took a long time for the FCC to figure out, like, how are we going to define the type of communication that happens over phone lines, because this is what time-sharing networks are doing. They're using the phone lines. Um, to, but communication not between people, but between computers. And that's essentially what um, starts happening in the early 60s. You have these, you have the academic networks for sure, and those are kind of academic networks, separate, non-commercial. But you start to have financial uh, the financial industry starting to use some of these services, use this sure. technology to do um, to do trades by computer. And so, is that like what sort of communication is that? So, AT and T is like, aha, that's we should be in charge of that. Like, they should not be able to do that. And um, and a lot of back and forth ensues. And ultimately, um, the combination of this, the sort of the outcome of the FCC's. Um, the FCC's answer to that question is like, no, AT&T doesn't get to be the computer u- utility as well as the telephone utility. And also there are court cases that are challenging um, people who are u- essentially manufacturing and marketing devices that go on the end of the line that aren't made by AT&T. Um, and uh, this is the Carter phone decision, which was actually a, a device that was used for communication on Texas ranches, long distance communication. Sure. And uh, this this kind of device that was allowed, the sort of a combo walkie talkie telephone. And AT&T is like, no, 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 no. We, that's a little too close to being a phone. No, 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 no. you can't use that. And, and the courts actually said, no, this is fine. So that opens up the gates for um, every kid in the 1970s to have a Mickey Mouse phone. Um, <laughs> or maybe not sure. every kid, every kid wanting one. Uh, but this for, for manufacturers other than AT&T to be able to manufacture manufacture telecom equipment. And so those two things are kind of opening up the market and um, creating this um, a, a whole new kind of set of industries and opportunities for companies, whether they're providing uh, networking services or or hardware to kind of do their thing. And then, of course, that really goes flings wide open with the breakup of AT&T in the early 80s. Sure. So George Doriot uh, was a faculty star at Harvard. He coined the term venture capital, and you explain about him, H. Rowan Gaither, and um, William Draper setting up their investment vehicle, which was a close-in fund, which is kind of funny to think about close-in fund being the vehicle for VC back then. Um, but then they set up their partnership together as as what we now know as like a, a limited partnership. I think Doriot was, was, I'm trying to think, remind myself what his big investment was. He put $70,000 in Digital, which was obviously a Boston-based company, so this was kind of I mean, we're starting to get where VCs going from. Okay, I'm just going to put some personal money in to now we're going to try to kind of structurally build ourselves and set ourselves up to do more than just one-off investments. Yeah, and I think that the sort of structuring it where it wasn't the people with the money being the ones who were the actual investors actually was part of the secret because this was a really specialized industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, these were young companies. They were run by, often run by very young people with very little corporate management experience. They were engineers. Um, and they needed not just money, but they needed management. They needed, um, you know, VCs to bring management in, which they often did um, for a very long time. And also just to mentor these young founders and also to provide, link them up with law firms who can do their contracts for them and um, real estate developers who can, you know, who are building a building they can move into and uh, and banks <laughs> that they can bank with. That's the that's the, the genesis of Silicon Valley Bank, which sure. is not founded until 83. But that's part of it. It's, it's one of those specialized firms. A v, the VCs that really, you know, Draper Gaither and Anderson, who are these, you know, very well established um, power players. In the military industrial complex and politics and business in the late 50s, they come out and sort of establish a, a, 
a shop in the valley and actually is, you know, it's there for a bit, but is not enduring. Um, in fact, it's Draper's son, Bill Draper, the young guy who actually makes a go of it with his firms. Um, and then um, now we are, I think, into our fourth generation of Drapers as VCs in the valley. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, it's interesting because those establishment people had some success, but they actually could not do that hands-on mentorship um, or be able to identify really promising deals or have enough willingness to take on risks <laughs> to, to do the risky business that was, I think I'm going to make a bet on these guys who sure. are operating this funny thing in a prune drying shed. And that's what the younger guys did, not just because they were young, but the first generation of Silicon Valley VCs were, by and large, mostly coming out of these companies themselves. They were engineers. They had worked in the companies. They were operators. They understood how they worked. They understood how the tech worked. They knew people who knew people. They knew how to connect people like Fred Turman knew how to connect people. And that was their value. They didn't have money. They, they much money at the beginning. Um, they were, you know, borrowing money from getting a loan from their father-in-law and <laughs> getting, you know, and and, uh, and and playing with other people's money. They're using their own, you know, connections. Um, but it's interesting that Dorio, who was, the, again, rightly so, kind of heralded as the father of venture capital, this Boston-based, he was an HBS legendary Harvard Business School professor, and actually a lot of very important and influential VCs were connected to Dorio in some way. They were his students or um, mentees. Um, He was a father figure to many. But actually, digital was his one big hit. Um, And he got in really early, uh, really, really early, and just made an enormous, enormous um, hit when it went public in 1966. But that kind of was that kind of was it. I mean, I mean, they, he was in business for a very long time, but but he again was sort of part of an older generation, um, and uh, and the people who are the you know bringing together that firm in the '40s were kind of really you know Boston establishment and the leaders of MIT and um, you know again they had their they understood that the electronics industry was not getting financing from the traditional institutions and they needed to there was a a gap there but they weren't these young guys who were willing to go drive around the orchards and sort of see a prune shed with a sign on it and be knock on the door and say hey what you doing Mm -hmm. and that was the value add the go-go 1960s technology stock mania which was kind of spawned by the space race was a great decade for vc investors of the valley you point out that all someone had to do was walk into a room and mention a few exciting words What were those exciting words? And if we look back at the cycle that just ended in technology stocks about a year, year and a half ago, what would those words be this time as compared to that time? (laughs) What were the exciting words? Space age stocks, space, 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 space. That was driving uh, the market. It was and and space age stocks were kind of a, a, a shorthand for, you know, Defense and defense related and and NASA related aerospace related spending. Onyx, Onyx. Everybody put Onyx on the back of their name. Yes, yes, Onyx. Yes, everyone had kind of a weird like you know X's and sort of sci-fi names um, that didn't really tell you what you were actually was actually being. Well, you didn't need to because Wall Street could sell it. <laughs> Did you say SpaceX? <laughs> Did- did you just mention SpaceX? Yeah. That's no, that's a good point. Good point. Yeah. Well, you know, the other important thing to th- think about these go-go 60s um, is this was all enterprise business. There was no consumer facing sure. to, to speak of. And that's a really important distinction. You know, uh, this is a time when Silicon Valley, uh, you know, well, Silicon Valley got its name Silicon Valley in 1971, um, given by a local journalist in a trade paper um, kind of reflecting the the concentration of silicon semiconductor manufacturing there uh, that had grown so much in the 60s thanks to the go-go stock market and the space mm-hmm. race and and all that. Um, but it was not something that was, uh, you know, being that the rest of the world was paying attention to. It was pretty, it was just off on the side. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal wouldn't even write about public companies that weren't public in the, they, until, you know. Now, now that's all they talk about. <laughs> now that's all they talk about. Yeah, yeah. So, you, you know, you had to be publicly traded to, to get a mention in the journal. Um, and this, you know, just very, very different world. And um, and so this is just a, kind of at a different, you know, really important and lots of really generative things are happening and really important to how we get to now, but so different than now. And so the last boom, you know, 
you know, what has been the, what, what would be my shorthand for the last boom? I mean, we can talk about the products and the, you know, search and social and cloud and mobile and all those things, sort of the technologies that are fueling growth. But really, I think the words that most come to mind are, you know, easy money, fire right. hose of money, 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 rhymes. money. <laughs> yeah, we call it the rhymes. You never get things to happen again exactly, but the rhymes are what matters. The stock market peaked in 68, 69 and went into a nasty bear market. The 1970s were a downturn in tech as the government money slowed. This was especially true in a town like Seattle at the time. Explain to our listeners what happened at Boeing and tell us about the billboard that ended up being so famous. Yeah, yeah, this was, this was a perfect storm. Um, the things that had made the tech industry as it was go uh, all kind of went sideways at the same time. And uh, so the billboard you speak of is, um, and it's hard to, re- hard to realize. It seems so strange to think about now. So foreign. Seattle yeah. is what it is. But um, things got so bad in Seattle that there was a billboard erected in 1970-71 along a main artery kind of as you drive up from the airport then as you drive towards downtown saying, will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? And um, and apparently this is kind of a funny that the guys who put it up were um, it was actually kind of a joke that didn't land with anybody. Uh, It was it's supposed to be the people who put it up were actually commercial real estate brokers. And they were kind of (laughs) making fun of all the doom and gloom thinking about Seattle and trying to make a point that actually there was a lot of good things happening there. And. The fact that, like, nobody has got the joke for, like, 50-plus years, I think, attests to the fact that maybe commercial real estate developers shouldn't be erecting jokey billboards, but (laughs) that's another story. But what actually happened in both Seattle and the Bay Area, which were some of, you know, and L.A., like, intensely defense-dependent economies, but I think particularly in the South Bay and Seattle that had this kind of mono industry. So, uh, you know, Seattle was Boeing's town. Boeing was the biggest employer by miles. This is before Starbucks. This is before like any other big before everything. Name. Yeah. Before yeah. anything. I mean, yeah. you know, their Nordstrom was here, but it wasn't yeah. big. <laughs> the auto companies were just waiting. All the retailers were waiting for those bonuses to come each year. Well, I was going to say, let's kind of pivot because like, you know, the government spending wasn't just backing off in Seattle. It was LA. It was San Francisco. It was other places too. So, you opened your book up with David Morgenthaler, which I absolutely loved because um, as we were chatting with before, I got to run into David's son, Gary, by random chance on a ski chair. And I, I, I met his wife at the time. This is four years ago in Lake Tahoe. Very random. And that's why I was like, oh, your book was made for me, Margaret. I love this. <laughs> um, he pointed out that there were three prior booms to me when we were visiting. He said it was 69 was a boom that ended up busting 87 and then 1999, how slow did the financing in the tech business get in the 70s? Because I think you do a good job of explaining how bad things got for financing and funding and going public. Yeah, it was really slow. It was painfully slow. Um, You know, this happens at a time when the commercial side of the industry is definitely getting its legs, for sure. Um, But it still is pretty new. Um, And so the the combined one-two punch of defense spending declining sharply. So again, Lockheed, biggest employer in the Valley, lays off thousands of people. Um, and and then these newer companies, look, Intel was founded in 1968, so it's pretty new. Um, and other companies like it, kind of once the, the stock market dries up, um, there and there aren't IPOs and there aren't um, you know, there's just not money coming, particularly for early stage ventures. It's real desperation. Um, they are just the VCs are sitting there like the Maytag repairman, <laughs> waiting waiting for someone to show up <laughs> and give them money. Um, it's really really hard and takes a, it's it's like you know blood from a stone. In some cases, some firms, um, some companies actually go and license their technology to Japanese companies, which they later sure. regret. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they are trying to find um, resources any way they can. And so this really kind of slows down the market. Now, that being said, the early 70s sees companies like Intel like grow and have great success 
because what is happening is that there has been a you know technological inflection point where miniaturization has gotten they've gotten small enough and affordable enough that these can be really popular enterprise products. So this is the beginning of you know putting putting chips in where there used to be springs and you know mechanics. Sure. Well, you, you you point out how the chip business really boomed, and that's what kind of grew out of tech. And and this begat this begat in response, like the kind of the miniaturization of tech is what we started to see increasingly pick up. And you get into I, I love your conversation around Atari because this is really the outcropping of that growth in semiconductor technology. And also, again, to kind of set a legacy point, the Californication of tech, if you will, comes out of Atari. Yeah, Atari you and its yeah, hot tub can you parties. Yeah can, yeah, can you explain? <laughs> yeah, it's very bro-y, uh, to put it in another parlance. Um, can, can you explain just briefly the culture around Atari? And I mean, you tell some stories in there, Margaret. I was just thinking like, wow, men are bad. <laughs> They're just bad. It's a men are bad channel. Yeah. Well, so the other thing, what else is happening in California in the late 60s and early 70s? It's the counterculture. It's the new generation. It's the baby boom. It's this new generation is coming up. And and um, yeah, and, and within that generation are a few people who have, you know, they go to college in the 60s. They get exposed to computing for the first time. They get really hooked on it. Some of them have been, you know, science nerds proud science nerds their entire lives and playing with stuff in their basement and, you know, making radio sets. And they're also simultaneously, you know, um, swept up in the, many of them in the anti-war movement or kind of the anti-establishment spirit of that era, even if they aren't actively protesting the Vietnam War, they are very much kind of anti-establishment rebels, whatever, and and kind of anti, you know, anti all politics, right? Sure. Um, Saying, you know, these institutions have failed us, um, governments failed us, uh, you know, and then you have Vietnam and then you have Watergate. So really it's, you know, those two together make, wherever you are on the political spectrum, you're disillusioned with your leadership. (laughs) You're feeling like the people in charge are not, are not doing the right thing. And, uh, and so that kind of, those, that new generation is so, so different temperamentally and politically and culturally from their elders, even people 15 years older. Um, they've just kind of, it's a totally new approach. And so they are kind of coming at this, not only, you know, how can technology be something that isn't just in a government lab or in a, you know, university or in a big corporation, but how can computer power broadly defined be something that can be fun and empowering and entertaining. And so sure. Atari is, you know, Atari is, is sort of, it takes a uh, existing industry, uh, a kind of, uh, you know, not very reputable industry, uh, you know, uh, pinball machines and um, and games that are, that are in dive bars, <laughs> not very, not very wholesome then. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it digitizes them, um, turns them into transistorized tech and takes advantage of this miniaturization of computing and, and computing power um, and the cheapness of chips. Um, increasing, you know, you can get some pretty cheap chips and do some pretty basic stuff. And first starts creating arcade games, like the actual, you know, the original Pong and the original hits of Atari were actually, you know, video games in bars and arcades. And, uh, and, and the, but the culture there, the people working there are, uh, are of this young generation. They are kind of very consciously like, uh, this is the tune in dropout generation. They, they're not like, I want to go nine to five job, put on a suit. They want to get high on the assembly line, and they want to have hot tub parties, and they wanted it was it was wild, and it was it was um, hot tub time machine, <laughs> hot tub time machine, and quite honestly, fortunately for Atari's business, they were a huge hit really early, so much so that by 1976, um, Warner. Uh, I, what's now Time Warner, well, whatever it is now, but anyway, they're bought by Warner Brothers or Warner Communications, and mm-hmm. so they're they're acquired, and then they have to kind of grow up on <laughs> the corporate side of things. I think if they'd been allowed to just keep on hot tubbing it, we might not be talking about Atari. I just don't see quite how they could have <laughs> kept let, on going. Let, let's yeah. not pick on asteroids and Pac-Man anymore. No, okay. no, no. Boston had lost a lot of jobs and government contracts as the 1960s ended. Quote, look out, Massachusetts, unquote, warned a pamphlet shooting out of the Bank of Boston in 72 with the state's high taxes, big ticket welfare spending. The bank argued business and residents were getting crushed, unquote. This worked in fat years, but not in lean times. Couldn't this line be used right now with Silicon Valley? Well, and also, like, as this is happening in Boston, the geographical center of tech is also moving. It is 
moving west. So how do you look at, as a historian, how do you look at the business circumstances that Boston had and compare that to, say, a California today where it's no question whether tech is moving plausibly to right now? Well, I think there's a I think there are a couple of things. One is business from an eco business ecosystem perspective. You know, one of the things that what Boston was was, you know, Boston was Boston. It's been around since the 17th century. It had a really mature business and industrial and 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 multivariate, right? Uh, like a lot of variety. Tech was one piece of what Boston did. Um, there are many, many, many other things going on. Tech was kind of the only game in town except growing fruit in the South Bay. And that kind of uh, remove from the economic headaches of big cities in the 60s and 70s and 80s um, was a real advantage for Silicon Valley. Um, the fact that you didn't have to worry about, you know, an urban renewal program to get yourself 50 acres of land to build a research park, which is what the cities of the East did. Um, and actually and did not do successfully. Um, it, it were, the, the products were not initially successful. Um, so just having that kind of monoculture of, of the mm -hmm. valley, strangely enough, even though that made it really subject to boom and bust, um, was, was, a, was a help. Now, there was a, you know, it was a high-tax environment. Cal people have been complaining about taxes in California since... The first, the first semiconductor. I mean, sure. if, if um, so, that's you know, I I I don't I don't have a lot of when people are like, oh my gosh, everyone's going to leave California because of the taxes. I'm like, I don't know if that's. I, I think they would have left by now if that were the question. That were the thing. But the other thing that I think the the real Boston story here is uh, is very much a it's a business it's a tech business and te uh, and technology story, which is that Boston's big hit was mini computers, mm. minis. Huge and workstations and you know and, and Wang and you know word processing um, uh, th that generation of computing, really really important and huge and way you know bigger, bigger and more visible than most of the things that the Valley was producing at the time. Sure. And they so that market matures in the eighties, struggles and by the end of the eighties this the not only the co the companies that are at the top of that market that have been real, the, the real leaders are themselves struggling, but also the technology is being superseded by desktop computing and by workstations like Sun workstations. And they, and they don't have a second act. And at the, by the end of the eighties, the cold war is over. And that in Boston, like the Bay Area, has a huge defense business in tech that's buoying its tech economy the whole time. And then they don't have a second act. And whereas the Valley gets its second act in software and Internet. Sure. So let's pivot to Xerox's park idea, which is, is just this really it's kind of like Stanford had the research lab and then Xerox goes and does park. There's so many great technologies that come out of park. There's so many great thinkers that come out of park. Here's what I don't understand. If you could explain this to me, I really appreciate Margaret. How did Xerox not make a lot more money from that? I just, I don't, I don't get that. It's like they created this great think tank of ideas and they made no money from it. I know. It's a great business story. Well, I think this is really revealing and I think it's, it's, it's revealing of like how, how, what went down the way it did and also kind of a bigger lesson for business, which is, so Xerox opens its Palo Alto Research Center Park in 1971 and it kind of follow the leader thing. It, it's a big company. Xerox is making, you know, lots of money making copy machines. That's their big success. And they see all these other companies, East Coast companies opening um, facilities out west in Palo Alto near Stanford as kind of research research labs. And they're like, okay, we, we should have one of those too. Cool. We're going to do that. And they didn't really have a plan. Uh, uh, like, uh, But I think the idea was we should get into computing of some sort. We should diversify. We should, you know, kind of think about getting into more of this hardware. So they open this thing up. And this is hitting right at the time that the stock market's going sideways and the sure. tech is going into this slump. And so what you end up with is you – and you also have a lot of young people who the last thing they want to do when they're graduating from Stanford or Berkeley is go work for Lockheed. So they're trying to figure out some way to not be part of the military-industrial complex because they're, sure. you know, they're, they're baby boomers. Yeah. <laughs> they want to have nothing to do with it. They're virtuous, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're like— v they're, and they're, Very virtuous. Yeah. And they, well, and they're also kind of in this—they don't have a lot of economic pressure on them. They've mm -hmm. graduated without student debt. 
I mean, this is the 60s, right? So Berkeley costs 50 bucks a semester. It's, you know, this is a very different economic reality. The, the valley itself is pretty cheap. There's a lot of, you know, hippies in the hills. <laughs> there's, you know, Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters. There's a lot of mm-hmm. kind of stuff going on there. Um, and uh, and so you end up with a lot of really smart people that might otherwise have been scooped up by industry that are, because of the economy and because of politics, are just, you know, kind of doing something that's a little more removed from the market and and playing around. And so they, a lot of them end up at, at park. Um, and then other f- people are kind of hanging around that come and hang out on the park beanbag, the famous beanbags <laughs> that they have and um, where people sit around and talk about tech. And what comes out of there in the course of the 70s, it's remarkable. It's this concentration of talent and, um, and innovation that essentially the building blocks of desktop computing. Uh, and 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 graphical user interface um, and the, the computing we know today and it also is working kind of in symbiosis with an existing research institute the Stanford Research Institute which is where a guy named Doug Engelbart is a researcher um, an academic uh, you know research guy never a business guy but he's the guy that in 1968 does this what's becomes known as the mother of all demos which is this um, demonstration of a computer that you uh, use a what he dubbed a mouse to mm-hmm. to sure. navigate uh, and point and click and and to use for very personal uses. The demonstration, among other things, shows him making a grocery list to go get groceries. I mean, this is just this incredibly intimate and personal use of computing at a time mm-hmm. when this is the same. 1968 is when 2001: A Space Odyssey comes out, which is about sure. a, like how like like that kind of that kind of computer is what people think of when they think of computers in 68. Sure. So, so a lot of Engelbart's people come over to work at Park. It's this this great kind of. It's a perfect sandbox. The sandbox metaphor really works here, and it's in the case it was Xerox that did it. Now, once <laughs> the, Xerox starts cluing in to the fact that they start paying attention to like, oh, what's going on here? Are they actually building something that would be useful to us? Because in part because um, there's an article in Rolling Stone that appears in 1972. That's written by Stuart Brand, who's this kind of legendary Silicon Valley figure. He's the guy who's behind the Whole Earth Catalog, which is this kind of countercultural tech Bible. And uh, and Brand writes this this uh, article for Rolling Stone that talks about how all these hackers at and, and calls them hackers um, it, at uh, at Park are sitting around in beanbags playing and playing video games all night, and how that's you know this hacker culture, this kind of hippie, loose, sure. freewheeling, playing around culture, and so. So the suits <laughs> back in the back at HQ and Xerox are like, what the what? What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a real culture clash. I think to the core of you, like, why didn't they make money? It has to do with this cultural dissonance, but also it is the classic innovators dilemma of big companies, which is that Xerox was making so much money on copiers. Why, so why go do by, that? Yeah. Why go do that? And then they eventually do indeed market that what comes out of Park, the Alto, a, a desktop, very powerful desktop machine um, that incorporates this innovative technology. But they really and it comes to market and they sell them, but they never really get traction because they just, you know, they were a really good copier company. Their core competencies up and down the organizational chain were not in that. And so they missed the boat. And I think that's a real important lesson for for large companies and kind of the expectation that true innovation can come out of large companies. And this is not because large companies are clueless or the people who work there aren't good. It's that the people who work there are there because they're really good at doing the thing the company already does. Sure. Let's go d- a little deeper in that. Let's go into what technology wasn't doing good at, which was software in the 1970s. Well, so, software wasn't an industry. Like you didn't, the idea that you have a firm that would you'd make money from software was uh, was rare. Um, was not something that that the way the computer industry worked. Margaret, let me get you started on this with a little preface. Bill Gates is two years older than I was. My college roommate was going to Lakeside with him. And uh, he, he was a lakeside educated Harvard dropout whose dad was a successful lawyer and whose mother was uh, not only a great philanthropist, but, but a power broker in Seattle. And so he didn't enjoy being at Harvard, although he, he did make some money playing poker. He starts producing software for Altair, but didn't move to Seattle. They went to New Mexico. Teach our audience about why New Mexico and 
What's, what's the background of this thing? Yeah. So, yeah. So Bill Gates and Paul Allen meet in high school in Seattle and, uh, and a, a couple years into Bill's, um, Bill's time at Harvard, they decide that, uh, Allen had graduated and, and Bill drops out and they moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And why did they do that? Well, Al- Gates and Allen had been, you know, kind of playing around with, um, working together and, and, and trying to make, make money, uh, selling, building and selling software for, for a little bit by the time they do this. But Albuquerque is where this little company named Altair is founded by this one guy. And what Altair does is it, 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 it sells sets, kits that you can build your own desktop computer. Mm-hmm. Um, the analogy I like to use is, you know those meal kit companies like Blue Apron? Sure. Where you, you know... You get the ingredients, they're all pre-measured, but you still have to cook the thing. That's kind of what Altair did. Um, the state of the art at this point, personal computer companies do not exist yet. Uh, uh, the state where things are are people getting out their soldering iron and you know making something in old their school. basements. Old school. Totally old school. Going to Radio Shack, getting parts, and starting from the ground up. And what the Altair did was like, oh, we're just going to get you a little further down the line there. And then what Microsoft did was we're going to write an operating system that will work on this Altair. So you do not have to know kind of the pace computer languages to do this. Sure. Um, And so it's just making it a little more accessible to the still very small community of uh, passionate computer, you know, tinkerers and homebrewers. And so that was a huge – so they, they moved to Albuquerque, Albuquerque to be next to Altair, to physically be next to it. And they're there for about three or so years, and then they moved back home to Seattle, um, partly because they – you know, the logical place would have been California. Um, they knew that they would have a lot of competition for personnel in California, um, you know, a lot of other companies trying to hire people that Seattle had engineers because it had not only Boeing, different type of engineering, but still had a kind of technical workforce and also had the University of Washington with a computer science program. So they felt like they could kind of get a little bit of an edge there. Um, it was home. It was familiar. Um, uh, Paul Allen allegedly declared that since it rains so much, people will just stay in and work all the time. Um, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite, you know, I think people work all the time in California, too, even though it's sunny. So, <laughs> uh, But that's, that's how they ended up back in Seattle. And they knew how to break into the computer at the University of Washington. Yeah, when he's they younger. did. Yeah, they did. So uh, in the background of this, so I, and again, this is like that's the micro. In the macro background, you have Morgan Thaler, right? David Morgan Thaler, who is running around DC and various tech places because the '70s were really a nightmare for investment. You had you had the ERISA law changes that happened during the decade, um, kind of like taking the prudent man rule of Bostonian fame and taking it to like steroidal level of prud- prudishness. And then you also had this real wo- class warfare dialogue politically. Can you explain where the capital gains rate started for the VCs and where they were going to eventually go during that decade? Yeah. So capital gains tax rates, which were had been the bane of business and investors since the 30s. Sure. Um, there have been a long, long complaint about them. But really, at the highest levels, there were some that went up to 50%. It was a lot. And um, and now they're down, you know, we get down to how do we get to 15? Like, how do we get from there to here? Well, the beginning of that starts in the 70s when the Na- National Venture Capital Association, the, the trade association, professional organization of venture capitalists, is actually formed largely for this purpose to get together. And keep in mind, venture capitalists were not just in tech. There were venture capital investors all over the country sure. and um, and also working in a whole range of industries that kind of traditional finance was not serving. So a lot of growth industries is the way that they talked about it, kind of newer newer growth industries, which turned out to be, have grown a lot. And so they're, you know, not now much more established, but that was what they were doing. So they get together and, again, again kind of all of the stagflation, there were so many things that were really creating these disincentives for investment and particularly what was then called risk investment. So investment in um, in industries like tech that that were kind of like, this is a new market, this is a new thing, we just don't sure. quite know how it's going to work. So 
they are, they start lobbying Washington and start doing it in this kind of, um, you know, really just to have no, <laughs> they have no idea. You know, they're not lobbyists. They sort of just show up and, you know, think that they can go and, you know, show up at congressman's office and be like, so like, hell, you know, we got this problem. Can you help us fix it? And then they realize, oh, we need to get a little more savvy about this and get a message and get um, and get the electronics industry involved. And there was the American electronics industry was also kind of a big a big lobbyist for, for this. And so that kind of together, the, the tech community, investors and entrepreneurs kind of go to Washington um, and uh, really press Congress to um, do something about capital gains taxes and, and to reframe the argument as not just about rewarding the fat cats, because that's definitely how it was understood, um, that anyone sure. who's who's paying those taxes is someone who's as rich as Rockefeller, so why should we give them a break? And saying, no, actually, this is the future. So this is the thing that is going to seed the next generation of industry. These are these electronic companies. It's all this potential. And so what else is happening in the late 70s? Uh, not a great you know, time for American business, right? The, the mm -hmm. car companies are coming to, to Washington asking for bailouts because they're so beleaguered from overseas competition. Sure. Their lawmakers are really, really worried about, you know, the state of the American economy. There's a lot of concern about small business and um, kind of the the economic burdens and regulatory burdens on small business was a refrain, you know, in the late 70s. Um, for both, you know, the Carter White House is convening a, you know, White House conference on small business. Like this was the kind of bipartisan concern, although it kind of took different dimensions depending on where you were sitting on the political spectrum. But nonetheless, there's a lot of interest in this. Oh, let's help these little guys who are starting these companies and being entrepreneurial and, oh, yeah, this is going to be the future. And so that ultimately leads, starting in 1978, to a uh, – the, the tax law of 78 is pretty significant in kind of setting all this emotion, even before Ronald Reagan was president, but then um, continues with tax reforms during the Reagan era and beyond. So it was, um, you know, and it's interesting because like causality is, you know, part of this is psychological too. Like, oh my, yeah. so, so this is a great lead in to the IPO of one of these little guys, Apple. It's funny to think about them being a little guy. How did that capture the imagination of the VC funding crowd and the tech engineers themselves? Yeah. So it was, um, again, Apple. So Apple is um, incorporated in 1977. Um, it was it was one of many many companies in garages at the time. Um, there were a lot of personal computer companies that were these these sort of homebrewers start being like, oh yeah, we we could sell these things. I think the thing that sets Apple apart is um, one you had this uh, pair, you had the two Steves. So Steve Wozniak was was sort of technologically his wizardry allowed. Um, a really, really beautifully designed, it's just a beautifully designed machine on the inside. Um, and he had a relatively cheap chip that was built around um, and a really beautiful architecture that made it a kind of really good machine. Not the best machine, but the, mm -hmm. a really good machine. And you had Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs was, at the time, you know, had his wispy beard and went barefoot and <laughs> was very kind of presented as this young hippie. But what he had that pretty much was exceptional, I think he and Bill Gates kind of stood out about this whole crowd, is that they were like, we need, we're going to be big and this is what we need to do to get there. And in Jobs' case, he's like, we need, you know, venture capital from the best venture capitalists. We need management um, help from someone who's seasoned and knows how to run a company. We need the very best marketing and PR and advertising in the Valley. We need the establishment of the Valley, essentially the microchip people, to help us grow. And he got that. He got um, early venture capital funding from people like Don Valentine, um, co-founder of Sequoia, sure. um, semiconductor guy who like went went to the garage and visited them and was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people? But he saw that this was a really good product and that there was something special there. Um, they hired Regis McKenna, who had been the kind of the the ultimate um, marketing PR person um, for Intel and was kind of, again, someone he had, he had to persuade to take them on because Apple was this little nothing operation. So by 1980, Apple has become this hit. The Apple II is the first big hit. Um, it is not the biggest 
um, personal computer maker, um, Texas Instruments and Radio Shack and uh, Commodore. They're all like have bigger, bigger market share. But um, when Apple goes, uh, prepares to go public on Wall Street in late 1980, um, it really is, there's incredible enthusiasm about this particular company. Um, they go public in December 1980, a month after Reagan's elected. There's sort of this wonderful um, kind of uh, connection there. And then a month before that, uh, before Reagan's election, um, in October 1980, Genentech had been the first biotech company mm. to go public. And so that kind of combination, and, and he had a huge run-up. Um, and uh, and so, the, so these two really successful IPOs of these new industries get investors so excited. There is just so much hype um, around Apple's IPO, around Genentech's IPO, just leading up to it and then during and after. And this sets off a boom that is um, kind of you know, redefined Silicon Valley in the early 80s. We're jumping over some things just to make sure our listeners know. We're skipping over the Japan conversation that you did an eloquent job of, uh, Margaret. We're skipping over Dave Marquard and Charles Simone and you the GUI interface book, and folks. the word processor. So there's all great parts book. that I, I – I uh, we can't I, do justice to it in yeah, two hours. Yeah, I, I, I want to make sure readers know that they have to go read. Uh, but let's let's jump forward to kind of get back to Stanford. Okay, so the Stanford Review was founded by some interesting people. Explain who they were at Stanford and what was interesting about them. Yeah, the Stanford Review is a conservative student newspaper that's modeled on um, other papers that are founded around the same time in the 19, late 1980s. Uh, Dartmouth Review is probably the, the first and most famous of those. That's trying to provide an alternative student voice on campus um, among founded by students who felt that there was just too much campuses have become too liberal and, and sure uh, never heard that before, before by the way never heard that right? before yeah never and uh, and uh, behind the founding of the Stanford Review a key co-founder was Peter Thiel who then goes on to become uh, you know no, noted investor venture capitalist and founder co-founder of Palantir and um, behind other enterprises as well board member of Facebook. Um, famous, outspoke, outspokenly conservative. The one kind of most most prominent Trump supporter uh, in Silicon Valley in sure. 2016. He speaks at the Democrat at the Republican convention. So this is founded at a moment of you know when campuses across the country are there is this kind of new kind of ideological struggle that's going on and debate over that's triggered by a lot of things, but um, particularly by uh, decisions by universities to kind of change the core curriculum away from the kind of so-called great books or kind of a Western Civ focused um, requirements of every student must take uh, Western civilization or must take these you know certain things to something that was looking at all regions of the world and thinking more broadly about the you know cultural political literary influences um, over you know sort of a broader span of human history and geography. And it also is kind of an outgrowth of the what begins the 1960s kind of pressure often led by students um, to create programs in things like African-American studies and um, ethnic studies and women's studies and things that were um, looking at groups that had previously not been as focused on in the core sure. curriculum. So, so those culture wars are going on. This is the, about the time that uh, the closing of the American mind, Alan Bloom's bestseller, uh, is is hitting the you know the bestseller charts. The other thing that's going on at Stanford at the same time is there's this big hot debate over the location of the Reagan Library. So Ronald Reagan's pre is still president, but during his and but they start preparing for the presidential library right when you're still president because it takes a while to get it going, and so there were a lot of Ronald Reagan supporters who um, and allies, including people at the Hoover Institution, who wanted to see it located right next to Stanford in the hills right behind Stanford. And so there was a lot of pushback back and forth about about that. And ultimately, um, you might know that, remember that the Ronald Reagan Library is not at Stanford. It is in Southern California. Um, so that didn't work out. But those those politics are just a fire in in the Valley. And so there's this small group of Stanford students. Um, Peter Thiel's there as an undergrad and then later returns as a law student. And then there are a bunch of 
undergraduates who are at various times on the masthead of the early Stanford Review. And they are, many of them, people who are well-known to, well-known names in tech now, including David Sachs and Keith Rabois and other really prominent venture capitalists who also are prominent for their outspoken libertarian-ish uh, techno-libertarian views. And, um, and they have, and also they have become very successful. But that's how the PayPal mafia got started. That's how these people knew each other because they sure. knew each other from working on the student paper. So you talked about Sun Microsystems at certain parts of the book um, and Scott McNeely. We, let's see, I had the pleasure of doing a podcast with Scott about Karen Southwick's book, High Noon, which I don't know if you've read before, but really is this, the history of, of Sun Microsystems. The, their phrase was the computer is the network. Wasn't this just time sharing on steroids? <laughs> uh, well, it was um, t- time sharing, but, but actually desktop computing on steroids. Sure. But, but the idea that the shared resources, the network's creating greater shared resources. You're accessing that individually. You're not having to go with your punch card and wait. You know, it's like your time right now for you. Yeah, yeah. And and creating really, you know, kind of a further miniaturization and decentralization and, and really altering the office environment, um, allowing kind of really powerful computing to to come on your desk. I mean, at the same time, you know, this is also the the basic idea behind Steve Jobs' Next, which is the, the company that he founds after getting fired from Apple in the middle of the 80s, which he had more of an academic market that they were going after but these really powerful workstations um, are kind of the next gen. Again, this is going back to Boston. You know, what really is part of why Boston fades away is because you don't need a mini anymore. You, 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 can, you just need sun. Back then, it was, it was like sun versus digital. That was the big fight. It's like they underpriced digital. And, I, and like I, I, loved, I loved digging into that because, again, you're back to this old school. Like there's still that vestige of Boston and its fight with Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. And digital had the same, you know, the, the guys who had made digital so successful um, uh, kind of could not, you know, like failed to adjust to the new market um, in the 80s. Yeah, they didn't yeah. adapt. So let, we're going to jump ahead again. Uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore came to the White House as the unexpected tech evangelist. Gore saw an Internet that allowed openness for business to roam and grow, including telecom and cable companies. Homebrewers and hackers didn't see it like this. They wanted a utility. We now know this to be the question of net neutrality. What do you see as the two sides of that coin? Well, it's interesting. You know, we're still we're we're still living in a world or an internet world whose regulatory regime was set in place in the nineties. Correct. And the choices made to to allow the tech industry, the internet industry, to self-regulate, then they made a lot of sense then, like a lot of lawmaking, right? Policymaking kind of, it made sense at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And the market's very different. Look, Mark Zuckerberg was in middle school when when Section 230 and the Telecom Communicate Act was was passed. Sure. Um, I mean, the Telecom Act had like just profound effects in terms of the sort of infrastructure. You know, we talk a lot about about social media and kind of that legacy. Um, but there's, there's also kind of the basics kind of sets in motion, kind of the... the the actual physical infrastructure incentivizes the physical infrastructure build out the expansion of broadband that kind of has allowed yeah. so many other things to go online. Um, that, you know, one of the, the kind of the story of the nineties is also the kind of boring, but important part of creating rules of the road of the web. Um, you know, everything from URLs to, you know, domain names and kind of rules of kind of, you know, how, how is information moving and how do you create some order out of this chaos in this very decentralized network? Mm-hmm. And also um, kind of letting the um, letting these then very young Internet companies to grow and to kind of take care of themselves and self-regulate. I mean, keep in mind that Section 230 is is actually what it does is it allows, it gives companies the power to moderate content without penalty. It not only doesn't penalize them for what someone does on their platform, but it also allows them to kick people off, um, which is sometimes lost in the, the free speech debate. But I think that one of the things that this reflects is the fact that 
what were the platforms that the Section 230 was thinking about? It was Prodigy and CompuServe. When's sure. the last time you did Prodigy or CompuServe? Totally different world. Well, well, and, and to, to fast forward it, I mean, I, I, think, I think one of the most interesting things going on right now is, so let's use another platform company to your point. Um, Bill Ackman is out suing Visa and MasterCard for providing credit card services to the porn industry, arguing that it's damaging society. There's a real cost that's not being accounted for. And if you took the same logic... How about web hosting the porn industry? How about web hosting? Who right? does that? So, so these, there's these real, like to your point, the, the, the moral hazard that some of this has caused where we just haven't said, hey, let's come back and revisit the dialogue. It's so far off base. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's kind of, because we get to really kind of the, the, you know, the boom time of you know, what really made Silicon Valley today what we know it. Um, John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins could see where the internet was going with the browsing the web and place money with Netscape. Netscape was the first huge, I mean, their, their IPO and their success was massive. It was like 94. the second coming of Apple in so many respects. But again, the, there wasn't revenues because it was just a browser. But there was, you know, growth and eyeballs and it kind of got that whole excitement going. So I guess, you know, if I use them and then I use like the success of Yahoo, again, these were huge platforms, but really their only outcome they could find to make money was ultimately where Google landed, which was advertising, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, that was like, the, you know, OK, the Internet's great. How do you make money on it? Um, and how do you make money beyond just raising money on the public markets and getting everyone really <laughs> overheated about sure. your stock? Um, how do you make money on it? And um, the answer initially was... <laughs> Okay, I guess we're just going to barrage people with a lot of pop-up ads, right? Because, you know, what, what do we do to get people's attention? Um, and that was uh, kind of created a, a, it's another problem of its own. And then Google comes in and, you know, think about the late, dial back to the late 90s. And when you open your browser and you get a million pop-ups and, and you, or even if you can get rid of the pop-ups, you still have a very crowded space that you're looking at with a lot of ads surrounding the information you want to see. And then you switch over to the brand new Google.com and it's all white space. It's like a Zen garden. You're just, like, ah. <laughs> it's like a trip to the spa. Yeah. Um, and it also was really good search um, and, and getting kind of good search that as the, as the internet got larger, you know, Yahoo in the very beginning was, it was a, a web directory that was human created. They hired people who were human surfers who went and like found all the websites and created these these directories sure. and yeah. that works to a point and then you can't do it because the scale's too big so google has really good um, underpinnings and it is beautifully designed and so it hooks all these people in kind of similar and it gets this user base and of course it needs to find a way to make money and then what google does and it wasn't it, it gets this technology from another company which is it embeds the t the ads in the search results so you yeah. can keep the trip to the spa but you also are getting advertising, the paid advertising that is then bringing revenues into the company. In retrospect, that's when they turned their customer into the product. Because I, I, can, I can remember, I, Margaret, I can remember this as like it was yesterday. You used to go into Google, and what it would do is give you the response to, to your inquiry based on the most hits that come in their system. And so what would come to the top was the company that was meeting customer needs the most often, and that's automatically what you got. And then without telling anybody, what they started doing is putting three or four advertisements for a number of years. A lot of, you know, dumb boomers like me were thinking that that was still the random search that had been originally when they turned us into the it, customer. It's those dumb boomers, I'm telling you. They've and, done it all, and, Margaret. And, and that is the point when good antitrust people would have stepped in and said, oh, time out. Well, let, let's, but let's, let's jump to the next question, though, because that's, that's kind of getting back to this, this federal government question. So let, let, let's ask another question on that, because I think you touched on the Sherman Antitrust, which, by the way, we really appreciate that. Uh, Breaking Rockefeller is a book that we've yeah, done. Peter Doran's about book is Peter Doran and John Rockefeller. So let's, um, let's go back to this idea of government. So Sun and Scott McNeely attacked Microsoft in court, as did the federal government. They prevailed, yet it didn't hurt Microsoft. Now, I would argue, Cole, that spending 15 years without a new high in your stock yeah, is, but, is, but it, is pretty Yeah, but they didn't punishing. have to break up the company like Ma Bell did. No. no. So. Do you think the government didn't go far enough in that instance of dominance? 
Well, you know, what antitrust suits do is they, you know, even if they don't end up with a company breakout breakup, they definitely slow slow their role. So you don't have to be broken up to have a have a really meaningful effect. Um, and you know, the, the, the irony of Microsoft is that the judge ruled indeed they should be broke up. It should be yeah. broken up, and then got in trouble. It got the judgment got thrown out because the judge talked to a couple of reporters when he wasn't supposed to. And so, uh, and then by the time it's kind of, by the, by then the Clinton administration's left, the Bush administration's coming in, the, the, and the tech landscape has changed. I mean, one of the arguments about against tech antitrust enforcement is the market will take care of itself. Right. And, um, and now, you know, uh, Facebook or Meta is kind of pointing to TikTok being like, see, we told you the market's going to, you know, we're not a monopolist. Like, look at TikTok. Yes, fair point. But I think that what it does do is, you know, yes, it was incredibly costly for Microsoft. It was costly in terms of its public image. Um, It forced Microsoft to not be as hyper aggressive as it had been in swooping in and replicating things and kind of just squeezing the oxygen out of the competition, um, taking advantage of its platform dominance. Um, it was, that was the way it became great. Uh, it did, it did that <laughs> and was kind of often unapologetic about doing that. To your point too, it also, when the government did throw down their, their verdict, it made the browser a profitless product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, and you know, the irony of course is that by that point, Netscape had basically been you know, is dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they yeah. did succeed in killing Netscape, um, being the Netscape killer. Um, and they, you know, and that then they did, you know, and there's a whole like, you know, there there's sort of bigger things at work than just only the uh, the the case. But that that definitely was a factor in in kind of having to downshift the speed that Microsoft um, moved to to preoccupying preoccupying management, and then you know, kind of being, you know, it was already late to the internet, which is why they did the internet explorer the way they did and kind of bundled it in um, and sort of had wanted to move really fast on that. And then they uh, kind of ended up being late to and missing out on mobile. And, you know, again, it's kind of hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, the the Apple iPhone, Steve Ballmer, the then CEO of Microsoft, his initial an, reaction to the iPhone was like, who's going to buy this $600 thing? Like, this is, a, you know, this is crazy. <laughs> he would not allow his employees to own and be seen at work with an Apple device. Yeah. And what they should have been doing is spending all the time they could thinking about that. So, yeah, so, so uh, by the way, just, just to go back to it, the, the bulletin board system that you talked about, Margaret, I remember playing role-playing games in the mid-90s on bulletin boards, okay? I mean, like, like I, I love this because this is, this is like, right, like it's Ancestry. G- Gen I, X and all that I, kind of I, stuff. I did Ancestry um, stuff. And- but so, so we, there's a lot that we had to skip over just because you got too much information, so I, I maybe need to become your publicist. Is there anything that you haven't, that we haven't talked about that doesn't need to be mentioned about your story writing and your, and your storytelling? Well, I think the, the the bigger thing I wanted to do with this book was I, I wanted to write it for people who, um, well, people in the industry who often don't know that longer history because you're so busy looking forward and building the future and you're so busy working and Fred Terman style, <laughs> never taking a break, having too much fun working that you it's harder to just take a breath and and say, how did we get here? And and also just to make the bigger point that how you got here, how, how we all got here, whether you're mm-hmm. in tech or you're in finance or you're in business, other realms of business, every, every company is a technology-enabled company now. Everyone needs software engineering, right? So it's very relevant to everybody. That, that this this history actually does matter. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily predictive uh, information necessarily, but it really is so valuable to understand um, patterns, to understand mm-hmm. constraints, to understand kind of what you have to be looking at as you are building the next thing. Because when you sure. aren't looking at those other things, that's when you they get matter. in trouble. Yeah, they matter. Um, and and I just wanted to bring these stories forward of people that you've heard of and also the people that you haven't and remind everyone that the success of the tech industry and of the Valley in particular is not just like singular genius, you know, individuals who just made everything happen. It actually is a story with a cast of thousands mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people that made 
the people we know and the companies we know possible and their their stories need to be recognized and told too because I think that also is this you know for all of us who aren't engineers mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a good reminder to you know that tech is a story that involves lots of core competencies and lots of people and that also I think at the you know the, the other thing that really animates this kind of going back to where I came where I started in this journey coming from someone who like knew about political history but didn't know much about tech to actually put the political history back in and mm-hmm. show that this is not just a kind of it has not been an adversarial relationship nor has it been something that is kind of necessarily government intervention kills innovation in fact sure. it's been more often the opposite opposite yeah. yeah opposite and to sort of recognize that and and for also for people who are on the side of like government should be in to recognize that entrepreneurial there's a real symbiotic relationship, an incredibly generative relationship between entrepreneurial capital and companies and government actors and programs. And that everyone kind of, you know, may not like each other all the time, but it really is imp- important to have a dialogue and recognize that one needs the other and vice versa. I didn't get to say this earlier, but you mentioned George Gilder in your book for a quick snippet. And I'm on the board of Discovery Institute there in Seattle. I just joined the board in the last year. And um, their big technology conference is called COSM. And I'm going to put this out on tape because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold me and, and them to it. But I really want you to come speak at COSM because I think what you're laying out is so right. Get back to this idea of like libertarianism without government. It, I just, it's never actually happened. It sounds good, but it's yeah. never happened. So, <laughs> it sounds so nice. It sounds so, it's, it sounds so quaint. Um, uh, so th- I, I just, we, we thank you so much for this market. Yeah, this, this is just been a total market. treasury. Um, I, I want to say to our audience and our listeners, if you're an investor, if you're an aspiring technologist, if you're a venture capitalist, if you're a history buff, you have, have to get to a copy this of this. Book. You got to read You've this. Got to read this um, book. You you will never understand how we arrived at the brightest minds helping teenagers make TikTok videos without this book. I mean, yeah. to be downright honest, you can't understand Doc Talk yeah. without this book. So so for our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, go out, rate it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get this. You know, if you also have great books you'd like to recommend, like Margaret's, um, email us uh, podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at Smeadcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.